Our passage is found in Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And the word of God says, In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. This is God's word. We've been talking about the holiness of God, and just before I begin my message, I want to bring us into a little piece of Brandon's message from Psalm 50. And in that psalm, the Lord indicts his people. It isn't him looking, speaking out to the world and saying, world, this is where you're failing me. He comes right to Israel and says, here is where you have failed me. You, you are worshiping me. But there's a dynamic that's going on in your heart that is wrong. You're coming as though you're doing me a favor. That uh, somehow I need your animal sacrifice, like I'm hungry or something. And, and so they have this misconception of what worship is. As I said earlier, worship is seeing God and our response to him. It starts certainly with our praise, our thanksgiving, our wonder, and then issues into us offering our lives to him. Um, Later he's going to say, and you've bought into the culture. Though you can recite the Ten Commandments and you say, this is our covenant with you, O God, it it doesn't phase you because you leave... The worship, and you go out and you're just like everybody else. There's no dramatic change in your life where you stand out as a special people of God's. And the very center in verse 21, God tells them why they're having these issues. And he says this, These things you have done, and I kept silent, You thought I was altogether like you. That was the issue. Was people went into worship wrong. They were living out their lives wrongly because they had a misconception of who God is. They thought God was like them. So when we say something like God is love, what comes to your mind? Very often it's tolerance and never telling anybody anything's wrong. That's not God's love. 
God loves us so much that he wants us to, to be fulfilled in life, to become the people we are always meant to be, formed into his very image. So he's going to say, this is wrong. I will judge this. And part of the problem that's happening in the culture, but as this psalm says, in the church itself, is we are missing the holiness of God. We don't see him for who he is. We see him as though he looks at life the way we do. The passage this morning is Isaiah 6, and I want to just give a a brief, big-picture outline before we dig into the passage. So, um, I want to draw the Christian life, all right? I'm going to draw the Christian life as though it's concentric circles. So, here's a facsimile of a circle, and think of like an egg, what do you see in an egg? You see the egg shell, but there's a whole lot going in inside underneath that egg. And so the Christian life is what you see on the outside is like the eggshell, but there's a whole lot going on inside. And so what do you see? You'll see worship. You'll see service. You'll see giving, you'll see going, teaching others, you'll see obedience, and you'll see even personal sacrifice. And we look at that life and we say, wow, that's, that's the Christian life. That's, that's the way we all ought to be living. But that's the shell. What is going on underneath? And one of my favorite passages is from Luke chapter 7. And I want to give, show what the dynamic should be that's going on underneath. And Luke 7 is a story about a religious leader, the Pharisee, called Simon, who invites Jesus to his, his house for a dinner. Well, during that time, people could come in from the outside, and there was an immoral woman, most likely a prostitute, who, who comes in and enters into, not into the conversation, but she comes to Jesus' feet. She is weeping. Her tears flow onto his feet, which have not been washed by the host, and his, his feet start getting streaked, his, the mud on his feet is streaked, and so she takes down her beautiful hair, And she starts to wipe his dirty feet with that beautiful hair. She breaks an amulet, very, very valuable amulet, probably was most of all of uh, her worth. She breaks it and pours it on his feet, and she kisses his feet. Okay, that's worship, isn't it? In fact, what we see with that woman is she worshipped, she served him, she was giving to him. In fact, her very identity, she gave up her identity for him. But the thing is, The Pharisee also worshipped God. He served God. Most people who looked in and said, oh, the Pharisee has this much better than the woman. But you leave the story saying the woman had it right. And the message is, what kind of heart? What's going on inside the shell here? What kind of heart are these activities flowing from? And he says, this woman loves much. And so 
What God is looking for is not simply these activities, because he is a God of relationships. He wants a relationship with us. And he's saying, what is, why are you obeying me? And he's saying, I want that coming from a heart of love like she has. But why did she love him so much and the Pharisee didn't? And Jesus gave a parable of two debtors, but the moral of the story was, he who is forgiven much loves much. So her love didn't come from a vacuum. Her love came from a realization of God's love for her. which was shown ultimately in her forgiveness. Imagine being a prostitute who is cast out of all of society, looked down upon, has no no sense of worth, and all of a sudden is completely forgiven, accepted, and loved, embraced, brought into relationship by Jesus. And so when she feels that love, that the depths of her forgiveness... She who is forgiven much, loves much. And her entire life gets transformed. Now, if our understanding of how much God loves us, how much we are forgiven, he who is forgiven much, so think in terms of this, if I feel I'm forgiven this much, I am going to love God this much. If I believe I'm forgiven this much, then my love for God's going to be this much. So how do we reach the point where we realize how forgiven we are? It comes by realizing how much sin is in our lives. So our knowledge of our sin and our sinfulness helps us realize how much we are forgiven. But how do we understand how big our sin is. Because what do we usually do? Okay, I did that wrong, but, you know, you should see what my neighbor's doing. Or the, the kid at school does. Um, I love the line, and I hope my son doesn't mind this, I don't think he will, is, you know, my boys would always say, he says, hey, at least we're not taking drugs, right? Uh, and so we have a tendency to, when we've done something wrong, is to compare to others. And so their sin seems pretty big, ours seems pretty small. So how do we grow in our understanding of how big of a sinners we are so we can understand the magnitude, the heights and depths and width and breadth of the love of God? And that is by seeing God and knowing his holiness. That God is holy. Can everyone see that? It says holy in the middle there. So what I'm trying to say is, understanding the holiness of God is central to the entire Christian life. That's what has to, the the most inner dynamic of what has to happen within our lives is to see God for who he is, stop seeing him as though he's like us, but that he is so perfect, so holy, that we have the experience of Isaiah that we're now going to read about. And this is the pattern we're going to see. Isaiah encounters the holiness of God, and all of these fall into place. So, Isaiah chapter 6. Now, a pastor was once, a woman was once asked by her pastor, when did you become a Christian? 
And so she, she responded, well, what are you asking? What do you want to know? Do you want to know when I first heard about Jesus? Do you want to know when I trusted Jesus as my Savior? Or do you want to know when I encountered God and I realized if God is all he says he is, then my life has to be turned upside down. And the pastor said, you know what? I want to hear about that third one. Have you had that experience of an encounter with God where you finally see him for all who, that he is? It starts to transform our lives. That's the experience of Isaiah. So, so let's take a look at it, beginning in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces. With two wings they covered their feet. And with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. What do you see? Take a look. What do you see about God. Okay. What do you see? Okay, first it says he is seated on a throne. So he is king, and of course, the context is the king just died. And everyone's wondering, okay, well, we got the next king now in line. And by this presentation, God is trying to show himself as I am the king. And I always am the king. I am the Lord of heaven and earth. I am the king of kings. I am the ultimate ruler. Do we see God in that way? Or do we see ourselves as the personal rulers of our lives? So he is the ruler. Then he is what? High and lifted up. He is exalted Above all else, he is above all. By the way, the word holy means separate. That there's this incredible expanse between who God is and who we are. And we often think of God's holiness as his moral purity. That he is completely perfect and sinless. And he cannot encounter and accept sin. And that is a part of his holiness. But that is God's separateness in regards to his moral nature. But God is also holy in his power. I mean, that's pretty simple, isn't it? How many of us could speak a word, a word and, and all the stars come into place? Okay, uh, His power is that separate from our power. But so is his mercy and his faithfulness and his love. Is as high as the heaven is above the earth, God says, so are my ways and my thoughts above yours. And so are we ready to submit our ways and our thoughts to God? Do we see him as that holy one? The high and lifted up. And then it says, the train of his robe fills the temple. What's the significance of this? Um, a few years back, they had a royal wedding I'm going for a number of years back now. A royal wedding with Princess Diana. I don't know if any of you watched that or any of you are willing to admit you watched that. Um, 
If anybody did, does anyone remember her wedding dress? You remember her wedding dress? What struck it, what struck you from that? She looked like okay. <laughs> train, okay, trains and trains and trains. In fact, her train was the longest in the history of royal weddings in England. It was twenty-five feet long. That's longer than our aisle. Can you imagine her getting married here? They close the doors, and it's still. She's standing up here. They close the door, and it's on her her train. Right? So, why does she have this massive train? Because it speaks of sovereignty and majesty and royalty. God's train isn't 25 feet long. It fills the entire temple because it proclaims his majesty, his sovereignty. God is sovereign over heaven and earth. He is sovereign over everything that happens in our lives. Do we see God for who he is and believe it? And now it talks about seraphs. This is the only time seraphs are mentioned in the Bible, though the passage we read from Revelation seems to be maybe seraphs up there. Because they had six wings. And with two of them, they're flying. And two of them, they're covering their eyes. Why? Because the brilliance of God's holiness and glory is so incredible, they they cannot look upon it. And then it says, with two, they're covering their their feet. They're covering their bodies. Why, Why would they cover their bodies? Why do you cover your body? You, You don't want to be seen. And it's like, have... Angels, elect angels ever sinned? They they never sinned. And yet, they're in the presence of God. They are so struck by his holiness that they, they cover their eyes and they cover themselves. And they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Now, why three times? Well, the Hebrew language doesn't have intensifiers the way the English language does. For instance, if I want to say, you know, you are holy, but you are the holiest, I can't say that in Hebrew. They They don't have that. So what I'd say is, you are holy, and you are holy, holy. So if I want to say the holiest, I'd say you are holy, holy. But the angels don't say that, do they? They say, you are holy, holy, holy. You are so far beyond the holiest. You're incomprehensible in your holiness. Do you see how big holiness is in the heavenlies? Does it become that big in the center of our lives? Do we see God for who he is or do we see God in the way that we want to make him be? Do we make him like us? And it says, the whole earth is filled with your glory. Now, we use the word glory for God a lot. Let's glorify God. Let's behold his glory. And it it speaks of his his ultimate worth, it, it speaks of the display of all that he is. 
And we see the holiness of God is intimately and closely tied to his glory here. Holy, 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 the whole earth is full of his glory. And the reason for that is his glory and the wonders of his, how, how valuable and important, how much he is to be treasured, is a result of who he is. Holiness describes him in all of his attributes. And so here is the picture of what Isaiah sees, but the passage continues. He didn't just see things. Smoke fills the temple, and so his nostrils are filled with the smoke. And the thresholds of the doorposts shake around him as though there's an earthquake. And what he's having is a multi-sensory experience. I think something Jordan's has tried to capture uh, and their IMAX with the, the big picture you sit in front of, and the, sh- the seats will shake a little bit, right? Sometimes when Superman flies by, or, and there have been times they've tried to put a scent in the air, so you get a little a multi-sensory experience. Well, that's what Isaiah is having, big time. He's seeing, he's smelling. It's everything shaking around him. He is standing in front of the holiness of God. And so what is his response? Is his response, hey guys, you got to see this. No, we read in the next few verses. Verse 5. Woe is me, I cried. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. Woe. Woe means I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. Isaiah well knew the meaning of woe. As a prophet, he was saying that over and over again in the the first five chapters. He says, Woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Woe to you who are heroes in drinking. Woe to you who gobble up the land and leave nothing for anyone else. Woe is you who acquit the guilty for a bribe. Woe to you who deny justice to the innocent. Woe to you who are about to receive the wrath and judgment of God. Upon seeing God in his holiness, Isaiah doesn't say, Wow, I'm not one of those who judge, who take a bribe when I judge. I'm not one of those who's getting drunk all the time. I'm not the one who take all the land and leave nothing for. I'm not any of them. No, that's not Isaiah's response. Isaiah's response is, woe is me. Now, probably any spiritual person in Isaiah's day, he is a prophet of God, is probably seeing Isaiah as, Maybe the epitome of spirituality. But when Isaiah sees God, he sees the opposite. He sees himself now in the presence of God's holiness. He's no longer comparing himself to anyone else except God. And he falls far short of the glory of God, which is the definition of sin given by Paul in Romans. Falls far short of the glory of God. Woe is me, I am in trouble. And I'm in trouble because I see my sin. And I'm in trouble because I am a man. Oh, by the way, he says, I'm in trouble. I am ruined. I'm not just under the judgment of God, but my entire life, as I've seen it before me, is completely obliterated. 
All that I trust in from, that was in myself is taken out from me. He says, because I am a man of unclean lips. Now, why does he talk about his lips being unclean? Why doesn't he say, I'm a man of unclean hearts, I'm a man of unclean motives, or unclean values, or unclean actions? Why uh, a man of unclean lips? Because his task, his job is to be a prophet, to speak forth the word of God, to represent God and God's voice to Israel. And Israel is to represent God's voice to the world. You do that through your mouth, through your lips. And the one place where Isaiah probably could say, Hey, who am I? I'm a prophet of God. That's what makes me special. That's what makes me valuable. That's what makes me right before God. You see, that was his own personal righteousness. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller puts it this way. Everyone has a glue that holds their personalities together. It's the integrating factor of their lives. It's the quality that they turn to when their self-image is challenged. They need to feel worthwhile. It's what helps us to say, I'm okay, I'm valuable, I matter. For some of us, it's our intelligence. I'm smarter than other people. I'm not saying that. Some people say that. I'm smarter than other people, and that makes me special. Or, I'm a tremendous athlete. And, uh, you know, I, I have these school records in basketball, and, and that's what makes me, me special. Some would say, I'm an incredible musician. And, of course, music is what makes the world go round, and so that's what makes me valuable. We always turn us up to my job. You know, I've made it up the corporate ladder. I'm at the top, and everybody looks up to me. That's what makes me special. Others is, look at the, 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 the amount of money I have. I have the biggest bank account. I win. Uh, or I have the most toys, right? And, and I win. Or I have the, the best family. Therefore, I'm special. So we all turn to something that holds our lives together and says, I'm of value. For Isaiah... It was his lips. And now when he, in the presence of God's holiness, he says, I am a man of unclean lips. That which I thought made me special but for God, I see crumble around me. Isaiah is completely hopeless. Right? He says, woe. He says, I am ruined. The one thing he's turned to to say, this makes me right before God. I'm a prophet of God now. It holds no water. He stands under the judgment of God and there's nothing in himself he can turn to. That's it. He's seen God and he's a failure before God. But of course the story doesn't end there. But I, I just want to pause for a moment and look at, at what's happened. Because he's seen God's holiness, he realizes he's in trouble and he needs a Savior. Until we see the holiness of God, 
But we're not going to see the depths of our sinfulness. And we're not going to realize we need a Savior. Jesus Christ came as Savior. He died on the cross to take our sins, to save us from our sins. Until we see God in ourselves in light of God, Christian life is going to be all on the outside. It's not going to be a relationship with Christ who saved us. Uh, think of it this way. is uh, I've used this illustration before. Uh, imagine a fire truck comes racing up here and the firemen come running in and they're in all their fire gear and they take uh, oxygen mash and they shove it on your mouth. They throw a flame retardant a cloth over you. They throw you over their shoulders and start carrying you out. What are you going to think about those firemen? You're going to think they are crazy what in the world are they doing? Or else they're saying, I mean, I guess they're nice people, firemen are nice people, but they are completely misled about what's happening here because there's no fire. I mean, if we don't feel there's a fire, we don't need the firemen to save us, to rescue us. Um, a lot of people see Jesus as a good moral teacher, but not a savior because they don't think there's a fire in their lives. And so when... A Christian says, um, would you like to accept Christ as your Savior? They go, are you crazy? There, there's no, I don't need a Savior. Or else they're saying, well, I guess you're a nice person who's a little misled about me because I don't need a Savior. And if we remove the holiness of God, which is a, a burning fire that shows us we're in trouble... Nobody thinks they need a savior. And that's what's happening in our culture today. And that's the reason there's a response to us trying to share Christ. We don't understand who God is. We haven't stood before him. Now, there, there's a second alternative, and that is there could be a fire next door. And so the firemen come rushing in here with all their gear. They put the oxygen mask on you. They, flow, they put the, the flame retardant cloth all over you. They put you over their shoulder. They carry you out. And what are you going to say? I say, wait a second, I know there's a fire, but I can walk out on my own. I got no trouble here. I can walk out on my own. And, and so there are a lot of people in churches today, could be us, who say, you know, I know God's a holy God and I've got sin and I'm in trouble, but I can save myself. I mean, I'm in church. I'll, I'll do penance. I'll do good things to make up for the wrong I've done. And so we don't need... A savior, And so we take Jesus as the moral teacher who teaches us how to save ourselves. And we miss the fact Jesus is, no, he's savior. We miss what Isaiah experienced. Woe is me, there's a fire, and I can't save myself. I'm a man of unclean lips, I can't save myself. Now there's a third option. We are engulfed in flames. Every doorway, every window has flames outside it. The smoke is in on it. It's about to suffocate us and kill us. We can't see our way out except to go through flames that are going to burn us to a crisp. And a fireman comes rushing in here, and he puts oxygen on your face, and he puts a flame-retardant cloth over you, throws you over his shoulder, races you out the building, so you're on the other side, you're breathing fresh air, and what do you do? Do you say... What did you do that for? No, you say, thank you, thank you. What can I do for you? I'll, I'll bake cookies for you. I will, I'll give my life to you. I owe you my life. 
And we are going to feel like I am saved from death. I have been given a second chance. I have been given a new life. You see, that's what Isaiah is going to experience when he says, woe is me, I'm in trouble. And we're going to now see that not the fire man, but the fire comes to him to rescue him, to save him, to give him a new life. And he's going to say, I owe you everything. So, so let's read that. Verse 6, then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which had been taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth, and he say, said this, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Do you see the picture? Isaiah, woe is me, and all of a sudden the angel takes what? Fire to his lips. Where does it come from? It comes from the altar. That altar is a picture of the cross. The altar is where sacrifices were made for sin. The cross is where the ultimate sacrifice was made for all of your sins. And when that cross is applied to your life, you hear God say, your guilt is... Your, all of your sins are paid for. Your guilt is removed. There is no barrier between you and God. You have made it out into the fresh air to have a living relationship with God. You see, we're in trouble like Isaiah. Woe is me. we miss that when we miss God's holiness. And then we turn and say, well, but I can save myself. There's a something in our lives, we call it our righteousness, that we cling to. And I want to read you a piece from a, a sermon a couple centuries ago from George Whitfield. He said this, and that sermon's entitled, How to Have Peace with God. He says, you, you can have, have peace with God unless you repent of your sin." And I think we see that our sin is a barrier between us and God until we say, God, that sin is wrong, that sin is keeping me from you, I need that sin gone, I need it paid for. Okay, But Whitfield continues and he said, you can't trust Christ as Savior, you cannot know the joy of salvation unless you also repent of your righteousness. Otherwise, when you turn to Christ, you will only use your righteousness to save yourselves through religion. Okay, do you see what he's saying is, first of all, we have to see there's a barrier. Sin. But there is something we say, I think I can save myself. I'll, I'll just be a good person. I'll follow Jesus more closely. I'll go to church regularly. I'll read my Bible. I'll pray every day. I'll ask God forgiveness all the time. And we start trusting in that religion to save us. And, and Whitfield is saying, not only do we need to repent of our sin, we need to repent of the thing in our lives that we think make us righteous before God. And, of course, Isaiah does that. The fire touches his lips. He's forgiven. And now we read what happens afterwards. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? 
And he said, here I am, send me. So Isaiah isn't simply saved, brought out into the fresh air and goes, oh, now I can have a live happily ever after. It's like God says, okay, now I have a task for you. You are one of my people. You are one of my children. I got a task for you. You ready for it? And Isaiah says, yes, send me. It's exciting to be called to the Lord's ministry and to know what you do has eternal benefit. You are ministering in spiritual ways when you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. You bring the the, the life of Christ into the lives of others. This is exciting. And so Isaiah now gets a description of the ministry that he's going to have. Verse 9 says, Go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their hearts dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and have ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, how long? And he says, until full judgment comes across the land. And that's only left is a stump of holy people. Do you hear that call? Who wants that? It's like a minister, you know, in seminary saying, okay, well, I got a church for you. And you go, okay, sounds great. Okay, what's going to happen when you go to this church? People are going to hear you with the ears, but they're never going to really care what you're saying. In fact, they're going to ignore what you're saying. And they're going to perceive the theology you teach But at best, it's going to stay on only a theological level. It's never going to enter their lives. Their lives are going to be the exact opposite. And because you keep harping on using the God's word, they're going to turn on you. And and their hearts are going to get hardened and more hardened to the point where it brings the judgment of God upon your church. And there will be a couple people who are trying to follow God that are left, but uh, the judgment of God is going to come upon your church. And by the way, they're going to all turn on you. And in Isaiah's case, he was eventually arrested and martyred. He was sawn in two. Okay, uh, Lawrence, you're, you're starting seminary. You ready for a church like that? <laughs> um, who wants a call like that? But what's Isaiah's response? How long? I mean, I'm not excited about this, so, so how long? And God says, right to the end. So why I bring this out is this is something very specific and particular to this time in the nation of Israel. God is going to judge them and they're going to be taken captive for 70 years so that they get the message, so that they now will turn to him and get life as it was meant to be had. But to bring it out because I'm saying, see what happened to Isaiah? He accepted the ultimate call. He's saying, Lord, here is my life. Send me no matter where you send me. I am not going to get my sense of significance out of the church I go to because they're not going to pay any attention. In fact, they're just going to criticize me all the time. So I'm not going to be able to say, wow, everybody loves my preaching. What a great... That's not going to happen. And I'm not going to get my sense of belonging in that church because everybody's turning on me and they're backbiting and they're gossiping about me. I'm not going to get that. I'm not going to get my sense of well-being. In fact, they're the ones that are going to come in and crush me. I'm going to get nothing out of it. But I don't need those things because I get my significance, my love and belonging, 
and my well-being from God himself. And so, Lord, no matter what the call, send me. Now, have you reached that point in your life? As that woman said, what do you want to know about? When I heard about Jesus, when I accepted him as Savior, or when I finally saw that God is all he said he is, and my life got turned upside down? That's what happens in Isaiah. Where does it start? By seeing God for who he is and stop reinventing God in your own image. See him as that holy God. See ourselves as destitute and helpless before him and then turn to the cross and get life new and go out and charge the world. That's the Christian life. And the center of it all is seeing God for who he is. Our Lord, we are so grateful for your word. Very often we say, boy, I just believe if God were here. If I could see what Isaiah saw, I think we'd probably cringe more than him, and I'd, I'd probably drop dead on the site, Lord. Uh, so in some ways I'm glad that you give me your word to give me a picture that I can now see and relate to. Lord, we know it's your word that reveals yourself to us. So we pray that your spirit make what we read today real to us. Because we can leave here saying, okay, that's what that passage means. Yeah, that's, that's, that's kind of neat the way the circles go. I think I understand the Christian life better. Or we can have an Isaiah experience if your spirit, Lord, takes this truth and helps us see you clearly in ourselves, in light of you, and in the cross and the light of ourselves. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus took it all, that he touched our lips with the burning coals, that he said, your sin is removed, your guilt taken away. Your guilt, it's been atoned for, it's been paid for. Thank you for sending Jesus and who we worship today. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the earth is full of his glory. Amen.